Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. The ideas we've we've started thinking about is that the, the activity that we are honing in on is one of the journey of it's not you know that we got a lot of ways of talking about it it's not miles per hour it's miles per hour it's not the, it's not the there it's the getting um it, it's this whole idea of the the road and the journey and the 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 experience that is so much more important than a physical object that physical object is just a means of accessing these experiences and this and this um really transcendent uh, existential activity which we've called rambling Welcome back to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host, Katie Kangas, and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talked with Richard Warsham. He's a Notre Dame architecture grad and the founder and lead designer at Janus Motorcycles. If you've ever wondered where design can take you, you'll have to listen to this little ramble. Our guest today is an entrepreneur. I think he's a storyteller and an artist. He's definitely a designer. He's the son of an architect and an architectural historian, and he's fascinated with vehicles. <laughs> It'll be fun to see uh, what the correlation is there. He's the founder and lead designer of Janus Motorcycles, Richard Warsham. Welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. And as I mentioned, and we were talking before we went live, my son goes to Goshen College, and um, that's basically right down the street from 
Janus motorcycles. So he and I have have uh, looked over the bikes outside the shop and inside the shop. We we know where you are. We know uh, what you do pretty well. So uh, this is this is fun to make this connection today. Yes, in fact, Goshen College. The gates of Goshen College are about a quarter, like a couple of blocks down Eighth Street from from my house. So I get to drive by it every day. <laughs> Very nice. It's great to have you here. And I love the connection. And we'll get into, there's another connection with this community. We'll probably touch on that here a little bit later. But um, as I said in the introduction, you're the son of a couple of people that uh, have their roots in architecture and your roots are also in architecture. What was it like growing up around a mom and a dad that, that you know, architect, architectural historian, what is... <laughs> So let's, I must phrase this a different way. What does that do to a kid? And is there any correlation between, you know, hey, we're focused on architecture and you're going off in a, not a completely different direction, but but you're not doing this. I guess you're not doing the architecture thing. What's what's it like growing up in that environment? Well, I I mean, I, I, I first of all, I'll just say I have only the, the most fond memories of it, really. Um, my parents were pretty unconventional with the way that they uh, lived their life and raised us. Uh, we lived on a, um, in, in a beautiful, I'm from Virginia originally, and uh, Virginia has a tradition of um, resort springs dating back to the 18th century, healing springs. And there, many of them are still around the homestead, the Greenbrier, or maybe they're still in existence. Um, but we grew up on one that didn't make it <laughs> called Yellow Sulphur Springs. And in fact, the sulfur part of the name was only added as a marketing ploy in the late 19th century. It does not have any sulfur, but um, beautiful uh, antebellum buildings. Um, and we lived in an old cottage because they, they would have these row cottages that would surround the hotel and this healing spring would be in the middle. Um, one of the cottages, my father converted into his architecture studio um, with a couple of rooms and everything was in a row, <laughs> even our house. <laughs> and he would he was able to walk over to to his office and work and he had it was kind of ramshackle plaster falling and uh and he and he would he he practiced architecture uh as a either as a sole proprietor kind of small you know single man office or at the most he had one or two employees um working for him so he was also uh this was really i mean i have a lot of recollections of that before the advent of cad and so he was hand drafting everything lots and lots and lots of yellow trace um he would bring it back and post it up on the you know in the kitchen for everybody to look at version m <laughs> you know if you go through all the different versions um so i definitely have very very fond memories of that and i think the main um impact of that on me was that i saw lots of section views and elevations all this orthographic representation. And so as a kid, I mean, well, I actually, the other half of that story is that my mother, um, both of them really, but my mother, um, homeschooled us. So we had this beautiful kind of 56 acres to run wild on and be homeschooled. So we, we pretty much just ran wild. Um, but within the context of a lot of drawing. And so that was kind of our thing was, uh, drawing a lot. Um, and just because of, I, I think, I mean, in retrospect, it's because that's what we were seeing, um, drawing section views. And then just, I mean, we had some neat, my mother always had an old Volkswagen, uh, an old Volkswagen bug. So she, she's always had a kind of a love of old cars. She's always wanted a Morgan someday. Maybe we can find her a Morgan, but um, another impractical vehicle. Um, but I, 
immediately started drawing cars. And I think that's probably something that's universal to, to, to kids, um, uh, strong, you know, an interest in vehicles of some kind. But then I started doing section views and it's like, how does the suspension system work and buying books on it, trying to understand that, um, and digging into that. So, uh, a lot of reading, my parents read to us a lot. Um, and, uh, when we went on to uh, probably the, the thing that, that, that graded on my brothers and I, I their four boys, um, was you go on a tour, we go over, we would, you know, go on a trip and guess where we would be visiting all the old houses. <laughs> and so that got a little, you know, as a kid that got a little old. Um, but not now, of course I do the same thing to my, my children. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, my, my, um, my mother has an architectural history degree and my father has a, um, architecture degree from, well, I mean, it's kind of the Virginia version of, of, um, we were just talking about, um, before we got on about Purdue, which is here, it's the state, um, kind of, uh, state school here in Indiana, agriculture. This is a big focus there. Engineering. Same thing as the case with what, what used to be called VPI. It's now Virginia tech. That's where my father went. And then he went back for a master's degree in architectural history at, at, at UVA. So I went to the, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, <laughs> the rival school in Virginia. Yeah. So, uh, his, I don't know if I'm getting off the rails a little bit here, um, but he, his, he was always interested in traditional and vernacular architecture and was not trained in that. Of course, in the 1970s, early 70s at uh, Virginia Tech, uh, it, like every other school, they were being trained in, a, in modernism. Um, and no, he had no idea how to, to do, he was just interested in vernacular architecture. And so by being interested by starting to do a lot of, he did a lot of architectural surveying um, when we were, and then he would kind of, I th- Looking back on it, I think he was bolstering his architecture practice. We would just survey historic buildings. And he surveyed much of Kentucky, <laughs> of the historic buildings in Kentucky. He'd just do it county by county. And that involves going out, drawing a floor plan, talking to the people, learning as much about it. And then it would be either end up nominated as a historic re- national register you know, uh, site or whatever. And so uh, I, I did have a lot of fun with him as a child driving around, visiting these, ho- these historic buildings in rural the rural Kentucky or West Virginia or Virginia. Um, and, um, but anyway, that's where he got interested in vernacular architecture and, you know, trying to figure out what that was. And then when he went back to, um, UVA after having dipped his toe in that kind of traditional architecture without really knowing what he was doing as much, I think, um, he studied under a a teacher named uh, Bill Westfall, um, uh, among others, uh, learning about traditional architecture and classical architecture. And it was really, um, transformative for him. And for me through him, um, I was able to kind of, I remember going to classes with him. He'd take and drag me along because he went later in life, um, when, when I was in my teens. And, um, and from there, his, he really, he, he won a, he, he entered a competition for the Charles city County. That was a design competition. And he did this really wild neoclassical, per, uh, version just to kind of on a whim and actually got, I think he ended up with a, it was either, a third place or, a um, yeah, I think he placed in it did, did really well. And that was kind of a, like he, kind of an eye opener for him that this, this was happening. And then, uh, kind of to jump a little bit ahead, I got to study under that same teacher, Bill Westfall at UV at uh, Notre Dame. And that was really the reason I went there. Long rambling answer. Rambling. <laughs> rambling. Yeah. We're going to get into rambling in a minute, but the, you know, you mentioned Notre Dame. Also in Indiana, by the way, for those of you that are not yes. aware. But I do know that we have several in our community that are Notre Dame grads, so they're they're cheering. 
silently behind the scenes <laughs> for the the uh, the Fighting Irish there, I guess. Um, and and you're speaking Katie's language too, because Katie, you're. Yeah, I got into it through art history and historic <laughs> preservation. And so the path your dad took, it's yep. like, I'm mm -hmm. taking my kids with me to these old buildings. This is uh, history repeating itself. <laughs> uh, but I love it. Uh, the The term vernacular is just an un, like, uncaptured part of architecture history that I just love hearing that people are diving into more. There's just so much to unpack. Very cool. There is a lot to unpack, and it's been unpacked in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's not, it's is, not a is there any relation? There, but, yes. You know, jumping so, ahead, so I guess, and we can always come back, about. obviously, mm -hmm. but is there any relation between the vernacular architecture that you essentially studied with your dad, you know, going to, going around all these places, and your design style for Janus motorcycles? That's a really good question. I haven't really, I haven't thought about vernacular a lot lately. Um, sure. That's a really good question. <laughs> this is um, true. I guess you'd have to add, we'd have to come up with a definition of what vernacular is. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm curious, the, the design process, we could dive into that more, but specifically the design style, the idea of your dad taking a design style that's older and then recreating it in a fresh way. And kind of you're making new classic motorcycles. They don't look techno, not like tech Tesla style, new car design. You're doing new designs of motorcycles, but so inspired by that that older aesthetic. Absolutely. Oh, so absolutely. Uh, that, that's a I'm, I'm really intrigued by that question of vernacular. Um, what we're doing, I haven't thought about in terms of that. I, I primarily think about what we're doing in terms of maybe more like just a traditional architecture or even classical design, which the basically would be the difference. I would, the most strict separation would be that it, it's something that finds value in the past and, and feels like we can learn from it. Um, and that, and that also accepts a sort of um, constant in human nature that doesn't change. And that, so, so if you make that, um, if you're willing to assume that, then, you can say that if something worked really well uh, in a previous century, there, at least on the human scale, it's going to continue to work to, to do the same thing today. Um, whereas that, that you would kind of oppose that with the idea that the, that the new and the unique and the novel is worth worthy of is the, is the standard by which we uh, establish value, which would be, you know, maybe I'll be a little, um, Roll some feathers up, but that's kind of the central tenet of of, of the modernist movement, which is that you know you know, and, and there's a lot of value there that trying new things is really important. You want to innovate and come up with new stuff, but you have to kind of pair it with an understanding that there's a way that certain buildings work best, and um, just throwing that out the window can be a mistake. And so that to kind of get to your point, Katie, for us, the the, the um, I don't have this shirt on now, but uh, I have a I do have a Janus shirt, but it's not the right one. Um, the, the logo or the the name Janus that we've chosen is a Roman deity that um, actually I encountered studying architecture in Rome. Um, uh, and he has two faces, one head, one looks to the past and the other looks to the future. Um, and he represents like the month January is the same. It's named after Janus because um, it's the beginning and the end of the year. He represented war and peace, uh, past and future. And because of that, beginnings and ends, it's automatically includes the idea of the road and of travel. Um, 
And so that's what we're really trying to do is with our bikes and my training is uh, our designs. We're seeking to hone in on that aspect of what these strange two-wheeled contraptions that came into existence 120 years ago, why they're fascinating, why we ride them, why they continue to be so um, moving um, on many, many like spiritual level. I mean, you talk to some motorcyclists that it's absolutely transformative what they, what they encounter on them. And I, I, ter- I certainly share that. Um, what is it? You know, it's, it's the same thing it was back in, you know, 1903, but now there are different requirements and different, um, you know, the motorcycles, we have roads that are really, really flat and really, really straight. And you can go, you know, 90 miles an hour if you want to, or more. <laughs> Whereas in 1900, there were, there was no such thing well, going I think over 45 miles. You know, I think that's interesting. Gone. Also in the context, you <laughs> just touched on this briefly before we went live with the idea of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Uh, I don't know how many in the audience have read that. It's been a long time since I've read it, but, but, you know, talk about the journey and, and, and maybe the wandering, the rambling comes from that, but you know, the experience mm-hmm. of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, a great uh, book called Shop Class as Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford. And he also wrote a book on why we why we drive. I feel like it's like the new um, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance because he, he, it's not the same thing at all. But it's a, it's a really a defense of the act of of uh, the, the liberty you, you, you can exercise, the agency you can have when you're and he's talking about either even a manual transmission car you know, you know kind of against the idea of of um, um a highly regulated you know autonomously driving vehicles etc um and the and the end where, where that can go um and rambling really is, is that that idea that and i think that's what you know you ask these guys you know even a harley rider or whatever they'll say oh it's the freedom man it's the wind in your hair you know and and abs- they're absolutely right um they're, they're talking about this kind of philosophical uh existential <laughs> thing that they can encounter on this, on this vehicle. So, and, and drivers. And that's of course the, the flow. I really appreciate is, is achievable You know, when, when I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about the bikes and, uh, yeah. and, and I'm not a rider, we talked about that earlier, bicycle rider, but never have ridden a motorcycle or at least driven one, been on the bike on the back of one. But, but as I listen to you talk, I'm thinking, you know, this is soul. You're talking about soul. You're talking about purpose and, and, um, uh, and I, I love that, right? Our connection to what moves us, the, the reason that we do things, our reason for being. And, and um, you, you know, obviously we can find that in, 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 like you said, in different disciplines. We can find that in music. I think we can find that in architecture. Wouldn't it be great if we were, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be great if, if that's what, what you poured into and found in your designs, whether motorcycle or library you know whatever whatever your uh uh whatever your niche is uh absolutely yep or that the the person who's who's living in or using that building can experience when they go in it i think that's even more important because architecture unlike it's really unique because it isn't like painting or any of the other any of any of the fine arts it's a civic art because you have this obligation to the entire city not just to the patron or yourself um it is a, an, a uniquely that's really well put, civic because I think activity that's, to, to uh, I think you're right it on. It. A lot of responsibility, you know, even <laughs> if you even if you're designing a home for someone, and, and well, it'd be hard to design a home in my neighborhood because it's a 
historic neighborhood with no empty lots. But if you were to design a, a home for this neighborhood, sure, it's it's maybe you're designing a home for me, but you still right. have a responsibility to my neighbors that are walking their dogs and um, and the rest of the neighborhood. My you know the the context that it fits in. I think yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, probably the one of the best explanations of, of what a traditional building is is one that's a good neighbor. <laughs> more more so than just whether it the, a little bit of a sidetrack that 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 professor uh, at UVA they call you they call him they're not doctor it's Mister so Mister Westfall which I was always trained to in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson, um, uh, Mister Jefferson, <laughs> uh, uh, he would he would describe preservation he said that preservation was a branch of modernism <laughs> which means that which means that it's to just preserve something because it's old is is has certain you can run yourself into some issues there i mean for for instance there are many 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 modern buildings now that are going to be on the historic you know the national you know, historic register <laughs> which is kind of amazing to think about it and what their architects would have thought about that because they were they, that, that was probably not what they were ever intending to have happen um, and the same thing would be true, I guess, to kind of flesh that out a little bit would be that he also would make the, and I would agree that it's not about a style. So traditional architecture is not, isn't like Leon, are you familiar with Leon Creer, the, the great, um, you know, classicism is not a style in the sense that it's a way of building. And it, it is this idea that beginning in the Renaissance or beginning in that history can be uh, categorized into these periods that are different. That that's where we start talking about vernacular because the the, the vernacular what is the the word vernacular is uh, is the dia it means the the the, the dialect that's what it actually it's this it's the language that you speak like there's a vernacular Amer uh, Virginian uh, and Kentuckian yeah, or whatever of, of the it's place. not a different yeah. style so much as it's it's like appropriate to that place it's kind of like grown up there mm. right and so the same thing can be said of like Gothic is Gothic architecture not classical. You know, it doesn't have ionic capitals. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so that's why I, I am interested in that question. Of, I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer it with what the vernacular and, and how that applies to Janus. I think it may be the vernacular aspect of it is that the fact that we've been molded. And I, I, I'm getting a little bit ahead. Because if, if you don't know what we do, it's a little weird here in northern Indiana. We have this RV industry, <clears throat> which 80% of RVs are made in Elkhart County. So RV capital of the U.S., um, which means that there's we have a, a vast wealth of of uh, manufacturing, it's just incredible. Yeah, we also have a huge Amish community. So combine Talk those two together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And much of our motorcycles, like many, many, I mean, huge proportion of the components for our bikes are made by Amish working off the grid with welders. <laughs> Very strange, and but what that does is it it, it is molded us. There's certain things that we lean into because it's easy. You can just it's like you just kind of fall into making the fuel tank this way, or and the same the same thing would be true of the RV industry. And and we we leaned away from doing it the way that many other people do it because that's just not easy to do. Our fuel tank would be a great example. The Halcyon is one of the it's our kind of it's our most sold model. It really defines what we do. And the fuel tank on that bike is almost part, it's half of it is my design. And the other half is a Amish brush mower cowling that 
was available to us because of the way it worked. And it turned into this. And I love the way it looks everywhere. It defines the. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. To me, that, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Because it is, of, um, and so, you know, this is this is me <laughs> geeking out a little bit because I know exactly the area that Richard is talking about. Elkhart County is is Goshen is the county seat for Elkhart County in northern Indiana. And that is one of the ironies, I don't know, of of that area is RVs and, and Amish. And when you're when you're describing how those fuel tanks are made, and, and I think, you know, when I was in school, Jersey Devil Architect, um, I forget who it was, but somebody from Jersey Devil was a uh, um, a visiting professor at Ball State when I was there, uh, and much of their design was very much of the place. It's like, what what can we get from this place? Is it stone? Is it wood? Is it uh, is it craftspeople? Uh, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright and the prairie style and fitting in into the environment was one thing, but but to me, Jersey Devil was was just diving into, hey, is is there is there an Amish person that can create this fuel tank? Um, that that absolutely fascinates me because uh, I, I think we are getting into the vernacular of of, uh, of motorcycle design. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I think you are. Yeah, it seems to be diving into the how and maintaining that connection to the craft. And I think architecture gets divorced from that with our software and everything else and not like the way your dad just researched buildings and was on site seeing how things were put together and made. We don't have that so much. And when you're doing things modern, you're trying to innovate on something that's never been done before as well. So it's incredible that you've got that conversation going and you've got that close connection to your craftspersons. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a good question too. The idea of the role of the craft of the craftsman in the design. I think that's another area where I'm actually encountering this now with some of our uh, advanced design tools that we use. We've started using um, 3D 
know, where we have essentially, you know, you have the digital twin of the physical model, which is a completely new idea in the, in the world of design. And, and I really have serious misgivings about the implications of that long-term. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that like, I think, I think of the, the, the traditional architect and one of the reasons that the vernacular maybe I'm making this up as I go here, the reasons that vernacular architecture exists is that the, the design of traditional or buildings traditionally was so limited. The architect would lay out the, the proportions, the, you know, the basic idea. And then there were so many holes in the design that the craftsman was, was left to fill in and they would have the, I mean, and they, and they did have the opportunity to basically fill in all this, all the ornamentation and how certain corner conditions were done and like all the stuff that the architect just, it wasn't considered essential to, to design everything 100%. And I think it, I don't know if I'm going to misquote my his, architectural history, but like Sir John Soane in the Bank of England was one of like the examples of where he just basically said, no, I'm designing everything and there's no room for the craftsman to mess with my design. And then we, then, then now we have the kind of statement architect who, you know, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't even matter what the people that live near it think. <laughs> He's going to do it his way. <laughs> and the craftsman has to just bend to that. And then we have the idea of the digital digital double or the idea of this that's so universal, I think, now where the building, you, you can have this model that has, that, that not, not only is used for the design of the building, it's used for the maintenance of the building because the maintenance crew can then access, you know, where the, I don't know, where the water fountains are or something. And, you know, keep it going. And, and we're doing that essentially with our design here at, at Janus too. We have a much more advanced design and I'm kind of muddling my way through it, figuring out how it all works. We're designing but, um, sustainable yeah. buildings right I don't now. Know where we go from there, we're, but... we're <laughs> building technology with so many different uh, advanced materials and, and things like that. Uh, whereas um, in, in this is where I, I, I know that you have some opinions on this, Katie, is you know, what about that farmhouse that sat on that hill that's got the cross ventilation that, you know, all of that is, is this building, this design today, is it debatably more sustainable than that building that was designed 120 years ago? You know, we're, we're, we're getting into that. And, and I think part of what I'm hearing is almost like this battle between designer, I guess, in one sense, architect and contractor, maybe, or designer and craftsperson, you know, what, what's that relationship really supposed to be like? It's a good question. Um, and I've never seen a, a lead certification for field stones specified for a foundation of a farmhouse. So I don't know where that would rank on their sustainability checklist. So it's, it's interesting because that is that the total new and then you've got the total old and where do we meet in the middle as building science is changing and sounds like motorcycle science is changing a bit. So I don't know what, what the next hurdles are for you. Um, so how do you tackle, has this design process related at all to what your, you saw your dad do with iteration X, Y, Z? Do you oh, still? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, yes. The answer, the simple answer is yes to that. I think it absolutely the, the, um, it's interesting that, to, to think about the sustainability. Um, I, you know, in, in the in the vehicle world, we're all, we're all looking at electrical vehicles and the implications with the trade-offs of uh, battery. You know, uh, the environmental impact of all these things. Um, 
And I think back to like the Matthew Crawford's idea, the book I was referencing about like, you know, running that old, that old uh, stick shift, maintaining it maybe in your front yard, you know, and these like, he, he always makes the argument of like these, you know, less wealthy neighborhoods where people are cars up on blocks and they're working on their car. Is that more socially, uh, uh, what is the role of that compared to, you know, driving the latest Rivian? <laughs> Uh, and the same thing would be true of, of, of buildings. Um, what, what I'm always dismayed by is the the lifespan of, of of a lot of the new construction that I see is is just so limited. Um, and they'll they'll make claims that it's not, but I'm sorry, I I, I know what kind of materials that are being used in this new or, you know new urbanist uh, community, and it's it's just not going to last a hundred years. Whereas the house that I live in. All the houses on the street that I live on, um, all the buildings down here in Goshen are all over 100 years old and um, showing no signs of ever, you know, they need to be maintained, certainly. But uh, the, uh, they're just chugging right along. <laughs> and so there's a lot to be just the, the, the metrics that we use are, are need to be evaluated. And the there's there's I'm going to get really off the track here, but the there are other things than. You know, like sustainability has to do with the whole experience of life on planet Earth and whether a building is soul crushing or um, uh, inspires a thriving community should also be a factor <laughs> in, 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 the, in, the, in the judgment of, of a building's um, long term success, I guess. So um, I think about just the, the efficiency, the obsession with efficiency that. And I don't want to come across like I'm knocking lead because um, I, I don't know much enough. And I don't know enough about it. I, I often just see a lot of glass and a lot of open. I'm like, how is that really efficient? Um, but, you know, there's this obsession with how efficient it is, and, you know, the, the, and which is laudable. I think that we do what we want. We are our, what typifies our century is a massive waste of resources um, uh, consumerism. But there are ways of doing it that are. Like we're, we're, we're so focused on efficiency and, I, and, and I'm going to once again, jump over. I think, that, well, architecture is such a great thing because it's, you can make so many, it's, it's, it's like emblematic of everything else. You can use it. It's like kind of like music in that sense that, you know, you can talk about modernity in terms of architecture so well. Uh, or, but I mean, it's, you can also talk about like poetry and music in the same way, but there's so much that maybe it's because I was kind of raised in an architectural scenario, but. It, it, it bridges a lot of gaps, but if you jump over to vehicles, you know, like they're, they're so obsessed with efficiency now that there is no, this isn't this, this sensation of riding or of driving a modern vehicle is basically, I, I have compared it to the, a self-driving car, I won't name names, but like a self-driving car or an autonomous vehicle, the, the, the actual experience of good commuting in that vehicle I don't think there's anything different than that and being in a train, except the train isn't as convenient. So the expectations are comfort and punctuality. <laughs> you know, like obviously you're not driving it. Now the expectation of a of a thrilling car or motorcycle is that you're probably going to be late, <laughs> and you might have an adventure along the way. You might run into somebody. I mean, I don't mean I hope not run into them, but like meet someone. Uh, you know. But there is the chance that you will have an accident. Um, and, and there's, it's just this like very chaotic rambling activity that does not have efficiency as its goal. And if you look at the greatest buildings, they don't, 
I don't think I think of, you know, efficiency is, is almost the last thing. It's more like long-term purpose. Because I think, you know, Jeff, you mentioned purpose earlier. And I think that that is really, that's the word when we talk about buildings, because, and, and Katie, you were saying that, that, um, you know, we're coming up with these buildings with new uses. And I, I think I would quibble with that. I don't think we have any new uses for buildings. There are no new functions. <laughs> They're all doing exactly the same thing that they always have. In fact, Westfall says that um, there are about nine different building types and they don't, there are no more. <laughs> there might be a 10th, I think. <laughs> I can't remember what that one is, but you know, there, and everything is made of a, everything is a re a reimagining of that. Um, and we know a lot about what that, the purpose of a market is or the purpose of a store or the purpose of a uh, temple. Uh, they all still exist. They're all alive and well. Um, and if a building serves that purpose really well, that's the measure of its success. And I think that uh, not to argue against sustainability, I think that has to be a key aspect of it, of that purpose. If it's, if it's there to. Well, if you bring this back around to, yeah, it's not, to Janus motorcycles, I mean, you've got a very specific, um, you know, a Janus is not a Harley. It's not a Honda. It's not a, you know, whatever the other brands are out there. You have a very specific, as I understand it, a very specific purpose and a very specific ideal for uh, for Janus and Janus riders. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we've kind of just been building these things the way we wanted to from the get-go. My background is in vintage mopeds. So the dorky little pedal type things that came into the States in the seventies, they were very popular in Europe after world war II, but, um, oil crisis made them really popular here. Really dorky. I was never into motorcycles as a kid. I was, I, as I said, I like cars I still do. Um, but those got me excited. There was something about the fun of just riding on them, working on them because you constantly were and the fun you'd have with other people, the community around it. And so that, that idea is what, really spawned the idea of Janus. So there, it was an activity, not so much a kind of motorcycle or, or motorcycling itself that fascinated me. And as we have been doing this now, um, 11 and a half years, <laughs> uh, we're starting to get better at explaining or, or defining it to ourselves what it is. And uh, one of the the ideas we've, we've started thinking about is that the, the activity that we are honing in on is one of the journey of it's not, you know, that we got a lot of ways of talking about it. It's not miles per hour. It's miles per hour. It's not the, it's not the there, it's the getting, um, it, it's this whole idea of the, the road and the journey and the, the, the experience that is so much more important than a physical object. That physical object is just a means of accessing these experiences and this, and this, um, really transcendent, uh, existential activity, which we've called rambling in, I'm actually in the process of, it seems like the last bit of this is the hardest part, but uh, publishing a shelf publishing a little book, a little pamphlet treatise, we're calling it on, on it's called the rider the rambler's companion or the art practice and enjoyment of motorcycling or lightweight motorcycling and get, get to the heart of what motorcycling actually is. Because we, what we, we, we see around us is probably beginning in the seventies, motorcycles just got so technically focused. They were tech to focusing on all these, the, the specification sheet um, 
until by the 1990s, it was, they were down to this war of, you know, two miles per hour faster than the other, and there were a couple more horsepower, or they had a, you know, whatever kind of electronic rider aid. And and no one, at least if you're um, a a law-abiding citizen that had a a concern for your own neck, you're not going to be able to even experience. So if you kind of go back to the, the, even the commercials or the ads from the 1920s, they're, they're talking about the experience. And, and that's what people, you know, it's like old Harley Davidson ads is the guy cresting a hill, there's a birds in the background or something like that. Um, and that's really what we're trying to focus on is everyday riding, the kind of riding, even guys with a big giant Harley Davidson or, you know, couples that ride or you know, anyone who's out there riding, the kind of riding they're doing mostly is two lane scenic riding. Cause when you get on a bike, you want to ramble. And so, we're basically trying to distill a vehicle that honors that purpose that motorcycles have by creating this for, I mean, uh, slow, low powered, lightweight, very distinctive looking classically styled vehicle that, that is not at all. I mean, we're not going to win any uh, sales by our spec sheet. <laughs> uh, you know, for our, our most popular model has 14 horsepower. Um <laughs> Our new model has 30, which is our high power bike, um, but they're also very, very lightweight, almost more in common with a bicycle than with a, with a motorcycle. Um, and then, of course, I would encourage you, if you're interested in seeing what they look like, they are very, very unique um, in the way they, they present themselves as, which is a, another question. I don't know how long you all want to go, but the idea of what retro is in the light of vernacular and traditional and classical, I've, I've had a hard time. Because a lot of people would basically describe us and categorize us as a retro motorcycle, an underpowered retro motorcycle, we've been called. <laughs> um, but to me, retro is the, the worst example of retro. And I don't want to insult anyone, but like the PT Cruiser, um, if you're familiar with the, the PT Cruiser, uh, it's a car came out in the, in the uh, early 2000s, I believe, uh, Chrysler. Uh, basically, it looks like a kind of an amalgam of kind of hot rod designs on the outside, and it's just a Dodge Neon underneath it. <laughs> we always called them PT Bruisers. Oh, you so, say yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, or PT Losers, what yeah. Mark Zweig calls them. Yeah. <laughs> We're not sponsored by PT Cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but basically, that like that's what. No, we're not. No, no, uh, no. That's like the idea that you're. You're creating a feel that has this nostalgic, uh, rosy-tinted vision of the past, which a lot of, of, of um, people accuse traditional architects of, of having a, a nostalgia for a past that never really existed, which I think we can all recognize a certain nostalgia, even for our own childhood, which it probably wasn't as rosy as we remember it, but that's the beauty of forgetfulness. <laughs> but rather... The, 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 what, what, what traditional architects and what we claim with motorcycles is that there was something that these things had a, a, a more direct connection with a different kind of purpose than the modern vehicle. So for, I'll, I'll illustrate that with the PT Cruiser. The PT Cruiser is a modern vehicle, fully boring, straightforward, has no driving quirks, characteristics, or qualities that make it unique. If you're inside it, I don't know what, how you'd know that it looks cool unless you, you know, the people put flames on them and stuff. Um, Whereas if you drive a, let's give a high end example would be a Bugatti or, no, or a, a Bentley four and a half liter car from the 19, just, I mean, talk about character. It's, it takes skill to even start the thing, <laughs> much less keep it running and, and operating. 
but it's absolutely thrilling to drive. But we could also take the opposite end of the spectrum, like my mother's old Volkswagen Bug, or my first car was a Volkswagen Bug, 1972. Absolutely thrilling experience. The, when you get to 70 miles an hour, the stick shift is you know, vibrating. The windshield is about you know, eight inches from your face. And what you feel like, the, the, the sensation that I always kind of describe it as is you're like a pilot. You're piloting something. It takes skill, you're, and you're thrilled by it. And I think that um, what we're trying to do is not make a retro vehicle, but make a, a vehicle that bypasses the, the obsession with efficiency and practicality. That, that, and that's what, when I look at those old vehicles, that's what I think fast. I used to say it was like, I think that they pair form and function really well. Maybe they did. I think they did. Any good design probably does, but I think it's deeper than that. And I think that the same can be said of traditional architecture is that it, and classical architecture, um, so another conversation, the difference between those two, but is that they, they have a transcendent meaning or purpose that can't be measured by the metrics that we're using today. And that's why that we keep coming back to them. You know, there's, you know, we keep revisiting designs that came up, that were, were arrived at 3,000 years ago or more. Which might have been more sustainable. Yeah. Well, well, they were more sustainable. And I think that there's an argument they can be. It's, 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 uh, but it's almost like we're looking at the wrong question. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, you use the word transcendent. And I know we're almost at the top of the hour, so we'll have to wrap this up. But I think it's, it, maybe this brings us all the way back to the soul and the, the purpose of it. But my, one of my theories about the practice of architecture, the role of an architect is this idea that, that as an architect, your job is to make your client's life better. Whatever that means, like your client could be the owner of a, uh, a motorcycle shop, or it could be uh, a homeowner, or it could be a bakery owner, you know, whatever. So what does making their life better mean? I don't know, right? It, de it depends. But I think it does come to what you were talking about and, and part of the, the basis for Janice, um, you know, that experience. You know, what is the experience of living in this place? What is the experience of working in this place, of eating in this place, whatever the activity is, the nine, the nine or 10 uses? Um, what's the experience of riding this? It does transcend. And I was, I was speaking in um, Cincinnati last week and that, you know, I, I love stirring the pot. It's like, you may, you may design a beautiful jewel box house. And somebody's going to love that. Somebody's going to love the design of that. But what's going to carry that is the experience of visiting there, the experience of being there, the experience of living there, sleeping there, waking up there, having your, your cappuccino there, whatever it is that you do. That's, that's where people are going to find the value. And I think the same is probably true. I don't know, I don't know your, your industry at all, but I think the same is probably true when you straddle a Janus motorcycle is what is the experience of riding this lightweight, low powered, small, uh, small motorcycle versus, you know, whatever, whatever the other options are that I'm looking at. And I think that's, and that's probably to, to me, when you find your ideal riders, when you find your ideal customers, they're the ones that value that experience, that rambling, um, that ability to uh, to go out and ride for the love of riding and, and ride this bike for the love of the, the performance and the maneuver and all, all those things. That yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think that, that we talked early on about the 
you know, Zen, the art of motorcycle maintenance, but also I mentioned briefly the idea of the zone, which is, I think, you know, that's a very Zen idea. Um, and that what we're trying to do is create a vehicle that is like a, um, uh, teleports you to the zone, um, as quickly as it can, because if you, you know, not to get too subject, but like the cognitive, you know, you know, psychology, the idea of the zone is it's, it's gotta be something that's challenging enough that it involves your, all of your attention but not too hard that you're, you know, terrified and it knocks you out of that zone. And so this is kind of like path. And so you're trying to create something that can engage you fully, but that is comfortable enough and confidence inspiring that you can kind of find this middle way of the, of, of a flow state, I guess. And I think that like, maybe I don't know if it's too much of a jump to go back, but good architecture, that experience to, to, to kind of put a name to what you said, Jeff, is that it helps people understand their purpose in the city so if you have a, a building that's 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 uh successful and it's doing what it's, its job when a person when a citizen or a let's just say a citizen we'll talk about it <laughs> that way like when they walk in their city hall or their library or their whatever if it helps them make sense out of to find their purpose make sense out of where they are in the city just uh, whether it's physically or spiritually or whatever then that's a, that's the success and i think that those maybe are combined somehow. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I, th- I mean, the correlations here. Uh, and if you if you just joined us and you've missed this whole conversation about going from you know parents, uh, architect and architectural historian, uh, architecture school, designing motorcycles, and and uh, the connection between uh, the different types of design, the different products, motorcycles and uh, architecture. You need to rewind. Uh, because to me, this is this has been a fascinating journey uh, through through the correlations and and uh, uh, the cross pollination, et cetera. So, uh, Richard, I I really thank you for this conversation. It's been a lot of fun, um, and I'm looking forward. Next time I'm I'm up in Goshen, I'm uh, definitely going to stop by. Well, I won't apologize too much. I did warn you it was going to be a ramble, so uh, I hope I hope it was good. It's a great ramble, and so forward-looking and a lot of aspects that people need right now. Um, just that connections piece is just awesome to hear about. Enjoying the journey. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for uh, including me. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you every week, In the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. 
It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.